is Jerry Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company. Welcome everyone to our most recent podcast, Into the Fire, Burning Coal Theatre Company's weekly podcast series on all things theatrical, and occasionally we go beyond the walls of the theater to talk uh, on other subjects as well. Today, however, we have a most theatrical subject, and that would be John Allure, who is uh, an actor, uh, one of our core company members, uh, and um, well-known to Triangle Theater goers uh, on really all three of the big uh, uh, cities, and you've also uh, started uh, working some at the Temple Theater recently, so you're branching out. <laughs> Try. You gotta diversify. Welcome, uh, welcome, John, and thank you for doing this. You're uh, uh, playing uh, William Tyndale, a most interesting character uh, in Written on the Heart by David Edgar. Um, this is a production that opens on December 1st and runs through the 18th at Burning Coal. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, character? Tell us a little bit about Tyndale. Well, William Tyndale was the first or one of the first translators of the, the Bible into the English language was um, a contemporary of Martin Luther and so one of the pioneers of the Reformation, influenced obviously by um, the Reformation and, and Luther and his, I guess his takeaways from the Tyndall Bible would be that in translating it from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew and the New Testament, from the Greek, he wanted to achieve a simplicity of language that any any man, any plowboy, as, as he said, could understand with, without a lot of ornate language that was in a lot of the existing uh, Latin texts. And that was a radical idea in his uh, day, which was the early 1500. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the resistance that he met uh, when he proposed that idea? Yes, well, the idea of having the, any person reading a Bible was heretical, and so they would smuggle. He was he was in uh, in Holland, in Antwerp, in those areas, Belgium, uh, at that time, where they they had access to to greater printing facilities, and they would make these these Bibles. They were quite quite subversive. It, it was you know a lot of the Bibles at the time were very large. Tyndall's Bible was very small. It was the first personal Bible, something that be, could be carried in your pocket, something that could be read in the fields. Which means uh, hidden from authorities, too. Right? Exactly, hidden. And, and that idea that, that any man could take ideas from the Bible and then interpret them was a challenge to the existing social order, to the king, and to, of course, the Catholic Church. Right. And uh, so Tyndale uh, produced or had printed 5,000 copies of his translation of the New Testament and right after that was uh, imprisoned uh, and the Cardinal Wolseley uh, had the 5,000 copies burned. He bought them, as I understand it, and, and had them burned, although he missed a few copies, as I understand. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Anne, uh, Anne, historically Anne Boleyn is known to have had uh, had one of the underground uh, sort of bootlegs uh, and uh, shared it with Henry VIII on occasion. So uh, even though it was uh, this radical text, it was also something that people were, were quite interested in. Uh, up and down the spectrum. John, uh, you uh, you have played uh, many roles for us at Burning Coal over the years. Do you remember the first thing you did with us? Uh, I do. I, um, the, the first main stage thing I did was uh, Blue. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Kelly Doyle's yeah, yeah, play. Kelly, yeah, Kelly Doyle's play. So right. that was the first one, and I, I can't even tell you how many years that's been, but many projects since. Uh, 
you were uh, you played the blue the blue worm in that one, as I recall. I did, I did indeed, <laughs> and, uh, and did some uh, some uh, trapeze. Work on trapeze, yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's the right. beginning of my trapeze career. And you uh, uh, subsequently did Henry V on trapeze for us. Uh, have you done anything else? Uh, any other hanging around? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have not. What was interesting about the Henry on trapeze was, I think the day it closed, I had one day off and then went right into the Henry ad um, at, at, at Playmakers. Playmakers. Yeah. I think I was doing Henry the Fifth. It was in my head for about a year. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, though different characters. Though different characters. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Playmakers uh, didn't have uh, trapeze in there. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> they did not have trapeze. And I remember Stephen Cole uh, Hughes saying to me, you're going to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and then you've, uh, you've also done musicals uh, with us. You, well, you did the two parts of Jude uh, the Obscure um, a few years ago and uh, with me uh, directing and also Connor McPherson's play Shining City, um, which, uh, in which you had a 30-minute uh, monologue, more or less. Uh, as yeah, part it was of 45. 45 minutes long, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I tried to get you to pick up the pace, but no, just, just kidding. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience. I'm, a, a, as you know by now, a big uh, McPherson fan. Tell me about your experience working on that play on Shining City. Well, that, that's one of my favorite plays that I've done, and, and I love Connor uh, McPherson, and I thank you for introducing him to me. I think Connor McPherson is the contemporary interpreter of Grand Guignol in the modern era. Uh -huh. um, and he's always got a scene in there that is absolutely shocking and you never know when it's gonna come in the play and you're never, you're never quite, it's, does, it's not necessarily always violence. Sometimes it's implied violence or menace or fear. Uh -huh. And I just, I, just, I just love his work. He's, uh, he almost always has a, uh, an element of supernatural in his plays. Um, in that particular play, in uh, Shining City, there is the, the foreplay, if you will, the build-up uh, is uh, the full play, and it really isn't until the last moment of the play that anything uh, that we're expecting to happen actually happens. Right. Uh, one night, uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, uh, someone in the audience uh, screamed, uh, a, a full-throated Hitchcock, uh, you know, scream. It was absolutely chilling. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just remembered it when you just brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, it was an actress in the community, um, uh, who, and I won't mention her name, but she was blonde, so uh, the Hitchcock would have been happy about that. Uh, um, and uh, and that uh, that play was uh, also notable because we worked with uh, one of. My favorite actor is James Anderson, who's done many things with us over the years, and uh, a young uh, lady who had been a member of the uh, Berliner Ensemble for, for a couple of years as well. So it was an, a very interesting cast. James is one of my absolute favorite actors. Um, he's not in the area anymore. Um, I miss him greatly. I wish he was, I wish he was yeah. still here. If you're listening, come back, James. We, we have work <laughs> for you here. <laughs> Um, so, um, so tell me about other stuff you've done. John, you're from uh, Canada originally, Toronto, is uh, that right? Montreal. I Montreal. went to school in, in Toronto, to, to okay. the University of Toronto. Okay. So, okay. There, and, and um, been around, um, it been in this area coming on 20 years now. Right. And uh, certainly got started in the area working with the Deep Dish Theatre Company, uh -huh. which is now dissolved, unfortunately. Right. And, I think the jump was from Deep Dish to Burning Coal and then from Burning Coal 
just trying to always trying to challenge myself and and do different what, what more can I do what what more can I do and that that was really the idea of musicals I hadn't I hadn't done a lot of musicals but I thought well, let's let's see if I can do that now yeah. so, when you were in Canada, you worked with Robert Wilson for a brief time. Is that right? Yeah, I worked with Wilson, but it was actually um, when he came to the Alley Theater in, um, in Houston, Texas, for his production of uh, <laughs> for his production of uh, Ibsen's When We Dead Awaken. Uh, they brought the the company from I think he was doing it at Cambridge yeah. down, uh, but the one role was the manservant. They they weren't going to pay that guy to travel, right. so they needed somebody, and I. I only had one thing, I had two things to do. I had to make a, about an eight minute cross from left stage right to stage uh -huh. left uh -huh. that in, in typical Wilsonian fashion, you know, it took uh -huh. forever yeah. and was never good enough for Robert Wilson. Uh -huh. um, Interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, that's fascinating. So were you, at, were you in school in Houston or what were you doing down there? I, I had graduated from the Neighborhood Playhouse in, in New York um, and like any actor was looking for work at, in backstage and they announced a general call to join their company as an intern. Uh -huh. So I auditioned and I, I, went, I went down to Houston. I was the, down there for two years um, before they ran me out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Houston will do that to you. Did, did you have other... Um, other experiences at the alley uh, as well as well, the, be, because he he has recently passed. Yes, uh, I got to work with Edward Albee yeah. um, down there, which was um, I was I understudied a, a production of um, he was doing uh, Beckett's Ohio Impromptu and Kraft's Last Tape, but what that gave me was the opportunity to to sit in the room and watch Albee, which yeah. was. Fascinating. As a director, as a, yes. As a was director. he uh, was he still writing at that time? I mean, do you know if he was engaged in writing a play? At that he time? he was. This was just before the break of Three Tall Women. Ah. So he he was he was kind of in in the dumps, yeah. but uh, on the on the edge of a comeback. That was the big uh, the beginning of his uh, his, his second uh, Act. life. Yeah, 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 as it were. Uh, I, I met Albie in the, the early 80s uh, in Memphis, Tennessee at a theater conference and uh, I don't know if I've told you that story but he spent a good amount of time with me alone in a, a conference room uh, working on a monologue with me uh, just no, I because uh, yeah, I was very, uh, very upset because I had not uh, got cast in whatever it was I was auditioning for at this conference and uh, and Albie asked me, he said, what are you, something along the lines of what are you moping about? And I started to say, I didn't get, you know, get, didn't get this job I had auditioned for. And he said, oh, and you'd like me to look at your monologue? And I said, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, that's exactly why I'm standing here in the corner moping. Uh, uh, and he That's did. gutsy. I don't think I would have yeah. been able yeah. to do that. Well, when you're, uh, when you're 20 years old, uh, sometimes the wrong thing comes out and it turns out to be the right thing, you know, and that was one of those moments. And, and he spent 20, 25 minutes with me working on a, a one-minute monologue that I had, uh, an Irma Bombeck piece, no less, you know, <laughs> which is about as albie like as you yeah. can imagine. Uh, so, he, yeah, he was, a, he was an interesting, uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating man. I'm glad you got to, to work with him uh, in, in a production. So we have lost uh, Deep Dish, which was a, a, a big blow for the community, I think. Uh, we lost our REP a few years before that. And then across the state, uh, the Shakespeare Festival, um, one of the two uh, large theaters up in the mountains, um, 
And then, uh, of course, about uh, 10 years ago, Charlotte uh, Repertory Theater. And to some degree, none of those uh, theaters have, have really been replaced, certainly not uh, Charlotte Rep. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on the, the current state of the art here in North Carolina? Yeah, I find it very, very worrisome. I, I thank God that uh, Burning Coal is, is there and in its 20th year and surviving and thriving. Uh, it's, it is my favorite space in, in this area. Uh -huh. It's a perfect theater, theatrical space. And I wish there'd be more of them. I mean, if you, if yeah. you look also, the Art Center in Carborough canceled all their theater programming. Yes. So, so now, yeah. on that side of time, the town where I live, there, there's outside of the Playmakers, which is a limited option, obviously. They, they, they have to employ their their staff and their, MB, MFAs, their MFAs. MFAs. Yeah, yeah. so it's not it's not really viable to too many on the local scene. Yeah. There's nothing on that side of town now. Yeah. And then if you look in, in Durham, um, and you see what is going on with Durham, certainly with the, the recent revaluation and the increase in tax value, which is great for prosperity, uh -huh. but it really sucks for the arts. Um, it's gentrification of the downtown area. It, it, exactly, know. and and yeah. so you see. Groups like Little Green Pig becoming, uh, you know, permanent nomads, um, and I think I think Durham certainly. I won't speak for Durham because certainly they still got man bites, mm -hmm. but in in Chapel Hill, I I think there needs to be a collective effort on that side of town to come up with a, a performing space uh -huh. um, that is that is subsidized by by you know. The, yeah. Tax dollars. There is the, uh, the Durham Arts Council uh, building. Uh, is that being used uh, regularly for performance now? I've, I've seen shows, but it seems like it's been a number of years since I went over there. R right, and I, I, I've never been in it. And you know, you and know, you I, and I, work, I work for the city of Durham, uh -huh. so we, we give them about a half, the Arts Council, about a half a million dollars a year right. subsidizing them. And, I've, and they been, do you know, other stuff. They do classes, they do art right. gallery right. Uh, showings. and things like that. Uh, it is, a, from what I understand, having never produced there, a problematic space in some ways because it butts up against the larger Carolina theater and I think there's some bleed, uh, sound uh, sound bleeds through and stuff like that, so. Well, that's, you know, that's the problem. Whenever I, you know, at work, I might just gently raise the idea that, hey, but how about a small performing arts space? Mm -hmm. the, the answer always, you've got the D-Pack and you have the Carolina theater. And, mm -hmm. And then you try to explain to people that, that that's not what I'm talking about. No. There's, there's value in theater to longevity is not quite the right word, but, but consistency. A, a performance becomes richer over time, and the artists learn about the, the work of art. Uh, unless you're the Moscow Art Theater where you can rehearse a play for two years, you know, the play is going to, to get better, and the people who are working on the play are going to get better the more they do it, and, and that's not a, something that bureaucrats seem to care about or be interested in very much. Um, we have a, a phenomenon in Raleigh that I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about because it may feel like I, it's biting the hand that feeds me, but that is the, the creation of a number of um, um, community centers, uh, you know, millions of dollars being spent on community centers uh, the control of which remains entirely in the hands of the city. And uh, I have often wondered, what if just for one year or one 10-year period, maybe five-year period, we just 
built those buildings uh, to the specifications of artists and then gave them to the to the to that and uh, if you look at the i know you uh, admire the public theater in new york a great deal that's that's the model right uh, joe papp didn't say i want the city of new york to run the building and let me know when i can do a play he said give me that building and look at the result look that, at that is ex that is exactly the, mo uh, the model and that's a very good good point right. because i know it so well durham has the same situation when you but when you talk recreation in a city what people do not they're not talking about going to a rec center believe me right. they may be talking about a pool but few are what they're really talking about are more trails more open space yeah. uh, bike lanes that's what the people want in recreation they don't want a, a rec center right. so i agree with you that it, it's it's wasted 10 to 20 million dollars you'd be better off having a public theater and then you have to uh, put personnel in that building to keep it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, money that could be spent on artists. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it feels like a, a bad idea that has lodged itself into the sort of collective consciousness of, of municipal governments. And I'm speaking to you about this because you work for the city of Durham. And I don't know if that's something you want to talk about at all or can talk about in the podcast oh no I can I can talk I can talk about that yeah I've worked for Durham for the same length that I've been here almost 20 years and watched it change and I, you know I started as an accountant um, and now um, was treasurer for a while helped to to build the financing model for the DPAC uh -huh. so I was very much involved in that um, from on the financial side and uh, and now I'm the assistant budget director and and, and dealing, as so many are, you know, went through the recession. The recession is a great thing to have because you have, a, you have an excuse not to do things. But now we're in a situation where we're seeing the growth return, we're seeing more money, and we're seeing more needs. And we, I tell you right now, we, just like Raleigh, we can't do them all. Right. And, um, it, so it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. It's interesting for me to, to be in that world but also in the arts world, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't talk about it a lot at work. I like to, I like to keep the life work very separate. Nevertheless, anytime I grow a beard like this, I say, "What play are you doing?" Every time, you yeah. know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, you know, and I, and I usually, I just say, oh, "No, I just want to grow a beard." I, <laughs> well, it's fun, it's funny because you know the stereotype of of the artist is. Uh, is the person who uh, wouldn't um, uh, be able to crunch numbers if their life depended on it or, or want to, and, and yet uh, of, of the acting community in the Triangle, you, you certainly are at the very top of that list, and, and uh, both in terms of your quality as an actor, but also in the way you approach uh, acting. I don't think anyone who's worked with you for more than a few minutes thinks of you as anyone but an utterly committed artist and yet the the idea out there in the zeitgeist is that you either have to do one thing or the other that you can't do both uh if you don't commit wholly to your art uh that that you'll be a less less of an artist and i wonder if you could comment on that john that that idea that permeates our business yeah i've I've always been able to do both. I mean, I like coming into the room, you know, into the rehearsal space and, and, and getting my crazy on. <laughs> you know, that's where you do it. But then when I go to work, you know, 
I think sometimes people get the misconception of, I, well, I know they do, that, you know, whenever I do something like an Andy Fast Hour, he's from Enron right, or something, right. that, that that's who I am. Right. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I have a full time job because I have support three young children. So I'm, I, I'm very grounded. And then in the evenings, I get to kind of go, go a little wacky. Um, does it fuel, does it fuel your art? Uh, does, does having that other life provide uh, input that's useful? They feed, they feed each other. The, the, the great stability of crunching numbers and, and, you know, a local government job, which is, you know, there are, at the end of the day, I need to get away from it and come here right. and and just explore the imagination and you know and I'll be looking for we're in I think in the midst of a nine day run here before we take our break. Believe yeah. me, next Thursday I will yeah. I will need to You'll happily uh, take I, that. I can't wait to go look at sales tax numbers. So oh, I won't, nice. you know. Well, we have some at our theater. You can come and look at <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, John, uh, uh, what do you what do you foresee in the future? Um, you're, you know, again, right at the the height of your abilities as an actor. If you if somebody said, uh, you know, you get to design uh, the Triangle Theater in the next ten years, what would it look like, and what would you be doing in it? If I could, uh, yeah, I would seriously like to get together with some Chatham and Orange County artists, who some people over on that area, and I've had discussions with, say, Mike Wiley, who is over in Chatham, and yep. and with uh, Derek Ivy, who's over there, about right. hey, we we need to get our act together here. Right. Um, the the challenge with that for me is always um, whenever I there's a lull and I have the opportunity to think about it, the work picks back up. Right. And, and, you know, I get booked as I am now and through the spring. Um, so th that's the difficulty of it. And, and I know f through your example just what the commitment truly is. Yeah. So that is, um, and, and those are things you can't just sort of go, well, I'm going to start my theater company. It, Many do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and um, in the same way, you think I'm going to start my restaurant and I'm going to drink at the bar. It's no, it's not going to work like that um, <clears throat> at all. So uh, I think your idea about a local government publicly funding an art space in lieu of a rex, the next rec center, wherever it is. I had never thought of that. I think that's an excellent idea. Well, if you if you think about it, Raleigh Little Theater, which is uh, you know I think there's a really good argument that it's the most successful uh, theater in in our area, in that it has been going for 80 years now, or almost 80 years, and and uh, has a large staff, relatively speaking, and produces 11 plays a year, and and is stable financially, and audience their audiences are consistently large. Um, that is a building uh, that's owned by the city, but it is entirely managed by the artists in the building and the same with theater in the park uh, David Wood's uh, building um, and there are other examples in other art forms uh, art art galleries and things like that uh, the the Museum of Art uh, you know is is um, a facility that that is uh, being <coughs> operated by artists not by bureaucrats and not that there's anything wrong with them we need them but what really is needed in the arts community in my opinion right now is infrastructure um, and I think it would act as a magnet to the to this community the larger community of the triangle 
to draw other artists from across the nation if we could if we could provide four or five or six um, small manageable spaces from anywhere from 99 seats to say 300 seats if we could provide those spaces and sprinkle them logically around the triangle then i think you would see an influx of artists that would uh, that would dwarf anything like that that we've seen in the 20 years you and i have been here in, in the city yeah, uh, i mean and that's a good point some people know that when when deep dish in chapel hill started i was the first i was the paul frelick was the artistic director and i was the managing manager, director for yeah. for the first five years yeah. and um one of I eventually left uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons was that I felt it was time for us to be approaching the the town of Chapel Hill and for a space. and And Paul was more committed to getting a long term lease in the mall, mm -hmm. and i i I didn't think I didn't think that was going to work, and it it didn't it didn't work ultimately ultimately yeah yeah. yeah. Although he had a good uh, nice ten year run in that uh, yes. in that space. Uh, well, John, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you again for, um, for the work that you've done with our company over the years. Thank uh, you for having me. It's my pleasure, and, and we're looking forward to your Tyndale uh, uh, in Written on the Heart. Uh, not your first David Edgar play with us, No, no, no. Uh, yeah. uh, you did uh, uh, The Shape of the Table for us uh, the first time we did it back in uh, 20, uh, 2011, I think it was. Something right, like that. right. No, I, I, love, I love David's work. He... he uh, he, he clearly, he writes like Shakespeare, and that's the, that's the he writes in these iams. And, and if you get a word wrong, you're gonna go up. <laughs> you know it. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know it yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for joining us, and uh, and um, we will uh, look forward to seeing you on stage very shortly.